Hello everybody, I'm Lynn Scanella and welcome to Fruitful Conversations. Each person I chat with offers a lovely window into their lives for us to find the bits that resonate with us as individuals. We might smile on them fleetingly, or maybe we chew on something for a while. But one thing is for sure, humans are interesting. Today's guest is Mandalee Perkins, co-founder and CFO of Husk Distillery and the author of two books, Tropic Tide and Hanoi Adieu, both historical accounts of her father and stepfather's wartime experiences. Now, as you'll hear, she's super modest and measured about her life and much more comfortable talking about her rather fascinating father and history in general. Mandalay Perkins was named for Mandalay on the Burma Railway, and you'll soon find out why. Because this episode is kind of a cross between a history lesson, a lesson in making rum and gin, but more than anything, it's a lesson in resilience. I enjoyed my time with Mandalay Perkins very much, and I'm sure you will too. Mandalay Perkins, so nice to be here with you. Very nice to be here with you too, Lynn. <laughs> Thanks for joining. We've been a long time getting this together, so I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Um, okay, let's start. You're a country girl at heart, brought up in, in WA. Yes, and the Northern Territory. And both. the Northern Territory. Yes. Okay. Um, in Western Australia, correct me if I'm wrong, you got really involved with horses and excelled in show jumping. Is that did. in WA? Yes. I, well, thank you for flattering me with Excel, but yes, I, it was certainly <laughs> my passion. Um, I've always loved horses ever since I was a little girl, so... Um, it was just something that I just had the opportunity to do, fortunately, and did it. Okay. And then one day you were breaking a horse in and things went horribly wrong. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, um, I was in my last term of university in Perth and I um, probably had a, a horse out of the yard a little bit earlier than I should have. It was a very windy day and horses... Uh, particularly young horses, tend to be a little bit skittish. And um, he took off on me and uh, we were heading straight for a barbed wire fence and I thought, this is not looking good because I could feel his haunches right under me and he was panicking rather than he didn't have his wits about him. So I thought, I think I might um, bail out before we get to the fence. (laughs) So I did that and then he changed direction suddenly and there was one tree in the paddock and I ended up hitting it. So um, that, that uh, didn't end very well. So What happened? Well, I, I um, ended up on the ground thinking, wow, what just happened? <laughs> with a very, very sore neck. My mother happened to be walking past with a wheelbarrow at the time and she saw the whole thing and rushed up and, and um, came in a uh, car. Well, she... We actually sat up and I said, Mum, my neck is really sore and we sort of supported it and I walked into the house and afterwards I was told, had I tripped over or done anything um, untoward, I could have actually died. <laughs> Such was the condition of my neck. So that was quite lucky. But um, What had happened to your neck? Well, I had a C1, 2 and 3 fracture, um, which was quite a nasty one, but because of my physiology, um, my spinal cord was very loose in the canal, so there was a bit of space. So when the, when the bones moved, it didn't actually damage my spinal cord. Oh. 
Yeah. That um, was so lucky. It was lucky because I had some friends that I made in the, hosp- in the, in the spinal unit in the hospital and um, one of them had a hairline crack from a rugby incident and he was a quadriplegic, so. Wow. Yeah, God, but, Mandy. Um, so you were, in ho- you were in hospital with that because you make it sound like, oh, well, yes, you know, fell off the horse, had a sore neck. <laughs> Yes, yeah. Well, it was um, it was a bit of a long haul actually in hospital because I had a a doctor who'd been knighted for his research into spinal things. And, Andy, and he yes, except he used an experimental brace on me. So um, after I'd been in traction for seven weeks, I went into that brace, and um, <laughs> it didn't work basically. So I had to go back into traction. Um, after three and a half months and do the whole thing again and it didn't work out that time because, um, yeah, I had to have an operation at that time and just fuse it. So my neck's never been the same again but but um, here I am. So that's – Did you get back on a horse? I, I did, yeah, not, not immediately because I was told that now that my first three vertebrae were, were um, fused that that if I do fall off the horse, there's not much – there's not much – to sort of land on except the last five. And you're a writer. Well, yes, it's one of my, one of my hats, one of the pe- different periods of my life. I've done all sorts of things. Tell me about your hats then. Um, well, I started off, my father wanted me to um, work for him. So, and I'd always wanted to be a vet. And when my horse had a terrible accident with a, a, a farrier and he, his um, eye was injured, I got so upset that I thought I'm not cut out for that, sadly. But um, so I feel I failed my animal friends in that regard. <laughs> so, so I was just, you know, fluffing around in year 12 and um, not knowing what to do. So he said he wanted me to come and work for him. And so I did a, a finance, a, a economics and accounting degree, uh, which is not exactly what I enjoyed, but I have to admit I did enjoy working for my dad. So he had a really interesting business and um, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty fun actually. Was this in, uh, in Darwin then that yeah. you were working for your dad? Yeah. That was yeah. a shipping yeah. business? Yes. All yeah. right. So we've mentioned your dad. So let's talk about VB Perkins. Yeah. Of <laughs> um, which you've written a whole book, which we'll talk about a little bit later. He was a, clearly a big, colourful character and had a lot of impact in your life. Describe him to me. Um, well, when I was young, he, it was very different when I was young to when I grew up. So when I was young, he was kind of very kind, but a little bit remote. He didn't quite know what to do with children and was sort of farmed us out to other people's, you know, <laughs> other people's families. Or um, I remember it was we used to, my brother and I used to fly up from Perth to Darwin in the um, 70s and 60s, right from the 60s, from about when I was six-year-old and he was four. And uh, we'd fly on these Fokker friendships oh, yeah. um, with six, you know, stops on the way to Darwin. So um, Broome, Derby, Kununurra, Wyndham, and then Darwin. <laughs> My poor, my poor brother used to throw up every, every say, time we landed. Because yeah, it's a lot of takeoff and landing. <laughs> I didn't, but he did. Yeah. Um, so, but, and then we'd get there and, and Dad, he seemed to be, um, yeah, he, he, was, he was very nice and I wasn't, you know, frightened of him or anything, but 
he was just this um, gentleman. He's quite an old dad too because he was 46 when he had me. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had lots of important people around him. He always seemed to know people from um, the Air Force and the Army and the Navy. And indeed I discovered later he was an honorary member of all of those and <laughs> And he used to get very to do very exciting things, and and we'd be dragged along to Admiralty House to some do where every, and we'd be downstairs, and somebody with a white uniform would come and bring us um, some Fanta or something, and um, yeah, it was it was a sort of interesting thing, but not really a normal childhood in that respect. So mum was in Perth, and dad yeah, was in Darwin. Yes, yeah. Um, and were they together at this stage? Um, no, but we didn't actually realise that for a long time. Right, so they separated and they, were living different yeah, lives. Yeah, it was very different, difficult for my mum um, at the time because they started this business and she stuck it out for six years. But I think um, it, it was a very hard time starting a business from nothing because my dad had lost everything twice really, but once during the fall of Singapore and then um, – yeah, later on in Cyclone Tracy, it was just um, pretty tough. Yeah. But, um, and also very hot. And, but anyway, I didn't even realise there was an issue because we never once saw them say anything bad about each other. But um, that's commendable. That's yeah. Good. Yeah. So it didn't really affect us childhood wise. Um, but it was, um, yeah, just, I don't know. When I look back at my childhood, I didn't really analyse anything that happened. You know, I just took it as as it came, and and uh, that was it. And if people asked where my daddy was, um, he was uh, work, he had to work in Darwin, and we used to go up and see him in school holidays. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to a yeah. child. So he was kind when you were a child. He was kind, but remote. How how then did that shift as you got older? Um, well, I really got to know him after I broke my neck. In fact, because he he flew down and he sat by my bedside. And he patted me on the hand, and I th- and that was nice. <laughs> um, and and he started talking to me about actually this is going to be a character building exercise. So I don't want you to feel sorry for yourself because um, you know these things happen in life, and you have to learn to deal with them. So you're actually going to come out of this stronger than than when you you know if it hadn't happened. So. Um, so, and he started to talk to me for the first time about what happened to him during the war. And I had never even known that he was in the war. You know how when you're a teenager, you don't take much notice of what your, your parents. If anyone except you, really. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and he, he started to tell me about exactly what happened and how he ended up on the Burma Railway and what it was like. He didn't say it in a, you know, a, a victim style of way but he said he told me some things about how um it was the younger people that died first because they it was about mental resilience and they didn't have it and he was lucky enough that he was 27 um and so and he was with some older people who were the volunteers who joined the malay regiment at the last minute like he did um just rewind a little bit so um it was for they're in singapore is that yes, right? yes, yes. Um, Dad was with the with the British Admiralty as an engineer, fi- you know, um, fixing up or converting troop carriers, uh, passenger ships into troop carriers, and working on a few of the naval vessels that limped in from the war in Europe. So um, they had a 
magnificent new naval base in Singapore, um, which was supposed to... They thought out, that would save them. Mm-hmm. Well, how's this Far East fleet, which never actually arrived, so... Um, so he, you know, he'd he'd been there for quite a few years. I think about five years, and he had his own social community, and he loved sailing, and he um, had a very interesting and full life there. So he had lots of friends. Whereas these younger people, some of them, the poor things, had just been sent off from Australia. So and, seventeen and years old or something. Seventeen, eighteen, mm. nineteen. I think uh, maybe not seventeen, but. Um, quite young, and it was just so awful for them that they just couldn't couldn't see past the end of the the week. Um, this is you're talking about once they got to the Burma Railway. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. just didn't cope that well with the conditions, um, and they probably weren't acclimatized to the heat either. So your dad was acclimatized to the heat, plus ha- plus you feel he had some resilience. Yeah, well, I think he learned to to have that resilience. So one of the things he said to me. Because at the beginning they thought it would only last three months and the war would be over. Mm. But in the end he was on the railway for three years. Wow. Yeah, which is a very long time. And so at various times he had to sort of employ different mental strategies to 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 get through it. And one of the things he said that, you know, that at the beginning he'd when it got bad, he'd think, Well, I'm gonna make it to the end of the month. I'm determined to do that because he was seeing people dying around him and he was saying right I'm going to make it to the end of the month and then when it was even worse he'd say okay I'm going to make it to the end of the week and then at one stage when he was sick with diphtheria and there were people around him dying of starvation and cholera and things it was the end I'm going to make it overnight Mm. you know at the end of the day I mean there's several times that he, they were lying on these bamboo slats and, and somebody next to him died and he'd wake up next to a corpse. So this is the sort of thing that was going on. So, But um, when he did get diphtheria, he ended up being put on a, a flat-topped um, carriage and sent back to the hospital camp at Ch- Chungkai. And that's where he met uh, Sir, Ed, Sir Ed, Edward Weary Dunlop. Mm. And uh, whilst he was recovering, they worked together um, Doing amputations and all sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of tropical ulcers that had to be amputated. Yeah. So he got better and then helped in that. He, he, in he the did hospital. help. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder is that optimism, what is it, a positive attitude, resilience, and optimism that you will find a way through? And, and that's what he was trying to teach you sitting in the hospital. Yeah. I wonder exactly. if that was the first time that, where he, like, he was seeing you as a young adult and going, I know I, I can help here, whereas perhaps up until that time he's gone, I don't know what to do with this child, this, yeah. this thing. Because you do feel a bit helpless if someone's in a terrible situation, don't you? And, and some of some, I guess some things, you know, what can you do? There's nothing really. But he, he, he thought that there was something to, to and that, and, and it, did, it did help me actually. Well, it stayed in your mind. It did, yeah. And, and particularly because I realised then what he had been through and I thought, well, that's very commendable that he has come out of it uh, so strong and resilient. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, I, th- I thought about that. And I, I, I think I understood it even at that age, tender age of 20 years old. Mm. Um, but 
he he often said to me, you know, you can a lot of people I've met, they're like they hate rice. They said they'll never eat rice again because that's pretty much all they got to eat. So it's and, it's still triggering. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. But he loved rice because he looked at it differently because that's what saved them. <laughs> you know, having even if it was weevil infested. And maggots. I mean, the maggots were protein. So it's, it's food. Yeah, it's food. And and he he really liked rice. And so he, I guess it's a, a bit similar to the glass half full or the glass half empty analogy. Um, and he went he for the glass, glass half, half full. full. Yeah. Do you think there's ever a situation where you can be overly optimistic? Is there? I wonder if there's ever a situation where optimism is a bad thing. What do you think? Oh. Ah oh, yes, I think so, definitely. And it, as far as risk taking is concerned, oh, yeah. because one thing I know with him, um, he fi- financial decisions were not a big deal to him because money is just money, you know. When, when you've been through what he's been through, not knowing whether you're going to be alive tomorrow, um, what what? So what if you lose all your money? <laughs> just, yeah, good point. Yeah, so he did take a lot of risks, and um, with his with his business um, and I remember a CEO saying, you know, he's ridiculous the, the amount of money he lends to people too and quite often they didn't pay him back um, when he could barely afford to lend it. Um, but and he, in fact there was one terrible, <laughs> terrible incidence of that where this, who was then the general manager got very cross with him. But, um, yeah, he just didn't have that same worry about things like that. So I guess um, even hearing that about him. See, these people, um, and, I, and I've, I've, I read your book and it was a wonderful thing to get a picture of your father, um, sort of an adventurer who who loved life and took every every bit from it. But I imagine difficult to be married to at times, the person who gives money away, for example, or doesn't really care about money yeah. as much. And that, mm. I think that was part of the problem mm. um, with my mum because my father, like when he lived in Singapore, you, he never dealt with money. Um, he signed a chit for everything yeah. and he had a, a Chinese accountant who just, you know, <laughs> he wrote a cheque once a month or something. And the the accountant looked after everything. You've painted a little a, a picture, a bit of your dad. What's your mum like? Um, well, she was the one that had to actually pick up all the pieces because he refused oh. to deal with the money. Okay, yeah. So, so um, you know, he 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 loved nice things. So Darwin was very Spartan at that time, and he would go if there was a, a Persian carpet salesman in town, he'd go and <laughs> buy some Persian carpets. Because when he was in London after the war, he did do a bit of an art trading. So, and mum would, would become infuriated that that we had no money for the housekeeping and there's no food. But um, and a nice we, piece of art. Oh, yeah, or a, piece of, or a, nice, a nice Persian carpet or something. To sleep on. So that, that was difficult. So she actually carried the load of getting the business off the ground um, because dad was a very much an operational person, a getting things done person. He wasn't interested in all that side of it. So yeah, it actually and, happens. And, and mum, you know, wasn't particularly either, but she had to be. Like she might not have been particularly organised or loving finance and neither did he, 
but she was better than him, therefore it fell to her to do that exactly. job. Exactly. And we sometimes end up with those jobs. Yes, we um, do. Uh, and you go, oh, gee, I, didn't, I don't want to be this person. I want to be the fun guy. But, yeah, you know, yes. you know, someone has to be That's the one right. with their feet firmly on the ground and that was your mum. So who are you like more? Who am I like? Yeah, your mum or your dad. I think I'm an interesting mixture. Um, Best of both worlds? Uh, well, I think, I think probably more like my dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I understood him. I felt I understood him. Is that because you spent more time with him? I mean, when you work closely mm. with someone or? No, 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 no. Um, I love them both equally. I, I would not, never dif- differentiate between them. Um, what about your children? Would you differentiate between them? No, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I call my mother, I always go, hello, it's your favourite daughter here. No. And she laughs and laughs, but we yeah. all know it's true. Yeah. And your mum is now, how old is she? 93. And where does she live? She still lives on 50 acres by herself <laughs> since my, my French stepfather died about 15 years ago. So, And um, that's where she wants to stay. That's insane. So yeah. you come from fairly tough uh, stock. Yes. Really, don't yeah. you? Yeah. So we talked earlier about, we started talking actually about your hats. Um, I, w- I wanted to get the right, to the writing bit, but what are the other hats in your life that you have, have worn? How do you describe yourself? Well, I guess um, – In terms of work, I guess. Well, I worked um, for my dad for, you know, about seven to ten years and I went to the Australian Maritime College um, during that time and, and got a, a postgraduate diploma in shipping business oh. with a, with a uh, thesis in maritime law. <laughs> well, I didn't expect to hear yeah. that. Yes. <laughs> the Maritime College at the time, there were 400 males and two females. Oh, that's so, excellent. Yes. So it was um, a bit different. The other one was uh, the, um, Liz Datson. She was the first um, uh, girl that got a foreign going master's ticket for super tankers. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah. yeah go yeah. to sisterhood. Yeah, absolutely. But it was interesting, and I, because I grew up mostly around males. I only had a brother, um, and I, while I worked for dad, they were pretty much all males. So I was very comfortable in that environment. Mm. So mm. it's good. Okay, so let's jump ahead then a little bit to well to two thousand and nine, quite a big jump, and you're on a Caribbean cruise with your husband, and he sees this rum called is it Rum Agricole. Yes, yes, yeah, different style of rum. Okay, different style of rum. And he decides it might be a nice thing, even though he's a geologist, to open a distillery. How did that go from an idea to to him starting right, well, what is now Husk Distillery? Yeah. Um, well, I think he, he, he was an exploration geologist, so we'd moved around the country a lot, renovated a lot of houses. I would always... We'd always buy and and renovate and sell, which which was useful for setting up a little nest egg. I guess he was really feeling a little bit jaded with the whole, um, you know, geology, mining, and the way it was viewed, and um, ready for a sea change. I think, and he's always loved surfing, and what he really wanted to do was go back surfing again. So. We started looking for opportunities to do something different, and I'm a country girl, mm-hmm. so Where, where's he? Where's Paul from? Well, he he grew up mostly in Southport. Okay, back in the days when there's only twenty five thousand people on the right. coast. Beautiful. Okay, so he'd have a surfboard on the back of his bicycle and head off. It's very to, much a Gold Coast boy. Okay, yeah, yeah, but it was a very different Gold Coast back then. 
Um, and um, so I wanted to always move back to the country because I think we're in Melbourne and then we were back to Brisbane with our last two moves. Um, so we just hatched this idea and when we were over in the Caribbean, Paul said, wow, we don't make this style of rum which tastes almost like a whiskey and you can sip it, you know, you don't have to put it with Coke. Might be an opportunity here because we're a sugarcane producing company, uh, country, so mm. um, let's look into this. So we did and he started experimenting and he went down and asked permission to cut some cane from somebody's farm down at Rocky Point, um, which is halfway between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. And, yeah, we just looked up how you would do it. I mean, this was in the very early days of the Carafe Distillery boom. And then he said, you know, we discovered this area down in northern New South Wales which had great surf breaks <laughs> and beautiful country surf for me. Beautiful country. So I could have my animals. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, so that's um, we started looking, looking, and eventually found this place. And it actually, took us two years to buy it because um, things weren't selling much. There wasn't much happening when in this, this area. Been? Ten, twelve. This was in years um, ago. probably two thousand eleven. Yeah, um, when we would have first looked at it, we managed to get, and we had no idea whether we would be able to do it because you have to do a development application and everything. Um, so we had to. Amazingly enough, Paul managed to get an agreement with the seller to um, the settlement would be on condition that the DA was approved, which was amazing. That when you amazing. Think, when you think of today when these properties just get snapped up. Um, so we're very lucky in that respect. And anyway, finally, after a lot of work, because the council had no idea about distilleries, as we didn't either, so we're all both both sides were sort of feeling their way thinking – wow, how's this going to work? But anyway, we muddled through it and got it through and um, bought the property. And how, how many acres have you got here? Uh, just under 150. And so. how many acres of, of sugarcane do you have? Um, about 12 at the moment. And I guess what we should probably explain to people is what's the difference in the rum that you make and the more industrialised rum, I suppose, uh, with molasses? What's the difference? Um, well. The about eight, 98 percent, 97, 98 percent of the world's rum is made from molasses, and that's because it's it's very easy to make because molasses you can store, you can make it all year round. It's very transportable, so you can make it anywhere if you can get some molasses transported to you, which is easy because it's inert and it's not going to start fermenting or anything. Um, so with sugarcane rum, you have to um, you you have to basically Put it straight into crush it. Put it straight into the fermenter within 24 hours, and then pitch the yeast in it. Otherwise, the wild yeast that's in it will start fermenting and muck it all up. So, does it start? Did I read that it starts fermenting pretty much as soon as you cut yeah, it? Yeah. So you've got to go. Yeah, it has hours to, be, to get it into, has the, to be very into quick. the fermenter. So, so that that's all very tricky. It, it gives a very different style of rum. What's a different style? What, what's it? What does it taste like? It's. It's drier, it's grassier, it's, it's – people who love it say it's a bit more like a fine whiskey and that mm. actually is what Paul found when he first, um, first tasted it back in the Caribbean and he just really um, thought it was an opportunity mm, okay. because it's such – you know, everybody loves Australian rum but 
over it's very different from what's overseas. Yes. So, and the, so it just seemed like all the threads were coming together. And you just you chose know. something that was a bit harder to make, just for fun. It's well, <laughs> it is it is really hard to make because you've got to grow, you've got to you know, you've got to pl- pl- prepare for fields, you've got to grow it, you've got to harvest it, you've got to um, yeah. You can't harvest it. it all year round, can you? No, well, that's the other thing. How it's, long is the harvest, Mandy? Well, the harvest season here is from about July to November, end of November, but um, ours is shorter. Depending, but it has been like up to three or four months when we're hand cutting because we're doing so little, mm. um, and you know, sticking it in by hand into this machine. But now we've we've sort of spent <laughs> all our gin profits on <laughs> building the, <laughs> the infrastructure for the rum, um, and we have a bigger mill. But we've still got very old equipment. We now have a harvester that's retired from Bundaberg and is thirty. Years old. Really? Yes, and a power hole that can get into the paddocks better than our tractor and trailer, um, which is 35 years old. Wow. And wow. Um, and they don't like floods very much. <laughs> no. And so there's been a bit of wiring problems and things to get through this year. But Funny about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, Just before we go to floods and things, gin. You mentioned you were spending all the gin profits. So you didn't set out to make gin, did you? But no. Because of the limited harvest time well, it's and not, yeah. distillation time of the rum, you needed a new product or no, you needed it, an it's, additional it's, product? It's, How more, it it's more that um, the rum needs to be barrelled and aged. So it's not a fast cash flow thing. Yep. So, And we wanted to um, make a quality rum so it would be in the barrels for at least four years. Uh, so um, gin is very easy to make in comparison because once you've made it, it's ready to go. <laughs> And that's yes. why you find, I mean, I think there were very few craft distilleries when we started, mostly in Tasmania, oh. but now there's like over 200 and it's increasing all the time. So, um, Yes, but I think you, you were one of the And they all make original. gins, you'll find. Yes, because it's easy to make, yeah. easiest as you yeah. say. We, I'll, I'll never forget though, my first, we went to an event and they were going, oh, we've got this, this gorgeous new cocktail. And we're like, oh, you know, what is it? And they were using ink gin. I think it was a... I want to say it was at the opening of Byron Bay Film Festival one year, years ago. And this gorgeous coloured gin, which is purpley blue in the bottle and then turns this beautiful pink like magic mm-hmm. um, once it's it's in the glass, tastes just delicious. Yeah. So what's the magic in what's the magic ingredient in that? Well, that was um that was really an incredible uh, stroke of fortune, I suppose. Um, Paul discovered this. A butterfly pea flower, um, which had a, a, was pH sensitive, and he it was used in um, Thailand mostly for health drinks and food coloring, all sorts of things. They know it very well, and they've been using it for hundreds of years. Our tea as well. So he just thought this was fascinating because he's a bit of a well, he's a scientist, yes. And so he he thought he he test the pH of tonic water and found it was very low. And then he thought, well, this would be perfect for gin. So we tried it and, of course, it went from the blue. Sometimes the ink gin, it looks it looks a bit purpley in the bottle depending on the fraction, refraction of the light. Uh-huh. But, in fact, it's blue. It's always blue when you put it into the glass. Yes. It is actually blue. Dark blue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, we tried it and it beautifully turned into a, 
a pink, pink gorgeous. Pinky, yeah. So we thought, wow, this is so different. But at the time, of course, um, there were very few coloured jeans. I don't think there were any really, um, not certainly not in Australia. Um, I think somebody had a pink gym maybe or maybe it was just the bottle was pink. I can't remember, but it was not a thing. So it's a lovely – it's something unique. It's something attractive. Yeah. You go, I'm going to try this. And yeah. I suspect there's a psychological impact as well. Mm. When you see that turn, it's like, oh, it's it's particularly yummy. And now you've got a slow berry gin as well, is that right? Yeah, we do. We nice do. red one. Okay. But it was interesting though because when we first launched Ink Gin, we did get a bit of pushback because people said – um, gin's Didn't supposed you? to be, yes, yeah, oh. yeah. It shows a, how much I know about yeah. gin. <laughs> they said gin's supposed to be clear. So, um, and, oh, this is a gimmick and what have you. But anyway, um, we Been pushed through. Very successful through. gimmick, it was, hasn't Yes, it? and now it's being copied all around the world. So Husk Distillery, you had these wonderful plans. You worked really, really hard. You were going along. It was taking a long time. You, you took your time um, to get it right. Yep. And you, you were getting really close. And then in 2017 – the most devastating flood in 100 years hits the northern rivers and you're four metres underwater. So how far did that put you back? In 17? Mm. Um, well, not too far really because we only had a little green shed, <laughs> seven by nine. <laughs> so that didn't matter, right? You could sort of clear it. Well, it didn't well, matter. You cleared it up a bit. Yeah, we, 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 um, yeah we, had a, we had a lot of wet things packaging and what have you from the, the other shed. Actually, it was the packaging shed too. Um, yeah, but it, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. The, I wonder the, if you think it's not too bad because you know you know. Oh, everything's hindsight. relative. Yeah. That's exactly, See, at exactly the time, what, what my father was saying. Exactly. At the time you're going, wow, this is terrible. But in 2022 you go, whoa, that was nothing. Because after that, of course, you open um, and you've now got a beautiful – uh, area here where you've you've got the cellars, you've got a restaurant, um, you've got a beautiful big area where people can come and have picnics, and you know, it's a, a it's a whole concern. So that was in 2019 when you finally opened, and 2020 bought us a little gift called COVID. Yes. Well, yes. What happened then? How did COVID affect your business? Well, that was uh, that was pretty bad because it was seven months after we'd opened and um, just made the investments in car parks and you know race water treatment and all the things that you have to do when you're on a farm. So um, it was difficult. It was difficult. But we did have the sanitizer. Um, you know, there was no sanitizer in the country, I think. I think people recall. forget about that. Yeah, At the beginning there was, of COVID, there, there was, was no hand sanitizer. There was none. It was all sold and no no prospect of getting any soon. So we um, we switched to making sanitizer and redistilled all our old heads and tails that we didn't quite know what to do with. Um, and made this delicious lemon myrtle smelling sanitizer, <laughs> and we didn't have any. You couldn't get bottles either, but luckily we had um, had some little glass ink bottles that I think we had ten thousand of them that we got for another job, and we just filled them up. So they're the fanciest sanitizer <laughs> bottles, <laughs> but we just wanted to get get it out there, and it was amazing. We had people just queued up bumper to bumper um, for about a kilometre sometimes. At the beginning, everyone just wanted sanitizer. So, <laughs> what about um, how, how did it, apart from the sanitizer, how did it affect the business? I mean, we we're really close to the Queensland border here, and that was shut for a lot of COVID. Yeah, it was. It was. It was tough. Yeah, it was. It, not only did most of our customers couldn't get to us, but um, 
some of our staff couldn't get to us, yeah, particularly towards the end. And it seemed like the more people got vaccinated, the tighter the border was closed. But we had our, we just managed to keep all our permanent employees employed. We had little, you know, we made the cocktail garden and had a few projects and, and we're still producing and doing what we could. So, so you get through that and then we, we come to that. February 22 yes. and uh, floods are back in a big way. Yes. Tell me uh, about that night or the, that 24, 48 hours. What was it like around here? Um, well, it was a weekend and when it was just we realised the rain was going on and on and Paul wasn't feeling too good and he diagnosed himself with COVID. We took a test <laughs> and he had COVID and I thought, oh, great, anyway, so – Nevertheless, he went off and we only we didn't have any production staff, so we only had um, – we were open. It was very rainy. Not too many customers. It was so much rain. But we did um, – those staff were still busy. So Paul got on the forklift and started moving um, all the packing shed up into our new barrel house, which is above flood level, and then moved all the bottles up as well over Saturday and Sunday. But he really didn't think that it would, would flood um, – because nobody was really giving any dire warnings about it. Um, so that happened over the weekend and I, I, in the meantime, did my best to bring up the cattle and get them up around the house on the ridge. And by Sunday night, Paul was absolutely exhausted and then it was still raining and I thought, I might just go and get the hay, um, the rest of the hay from the harvester shed. So I did that. And then while I was down there, I could see in the headlights that the rain was coming horizontal and it looked like something from sort of a, a wild, spooky movie. Mm. And I thought, oh, we really should bring up some more machinery. But, you know, the, the machines are quite high, you know, the engines and things. And Paul, was, Paul had had it. So anyway, we didn't. <laughs> so, and that was the end of that. Yeah. Well, it wasn't actually. They're pretty resilient old things. Well, yeah, they are 30 years old. Yeah, but they have had uh, certainly, they needed a lot of love and attention this year (laughs) to get through the harvest. So, Mandy, Mm. you're on a hill here. We're in your home, your beautiful home on a hill overlooking the river. So, you've got the river at one side um, and the fields on another, but all around you was water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were marooned with no electricity, no internet. We could get intermittent. Intermittent texts, um, that's all. But I did manage to text our uh, gallant president of the Tumblegum Com- Community Association who, who told me that there was somebody, of, there were boats up on the, the hill at Terranora because I was worried about the animals because um, it was getting pretty muddy where they were. You mean the cattle? The cattle, yeah. Mm. yeah. You so, managed to save your cattle though, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, we didn't Not lose. everyone was so lucky. Oh, well, we had six extras that swam in. Wow. So yeah, swam into you. Swam in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So some of them were on the far ridge, and some of them were up here around the house. So um, I had they all needed feeding. So I thought I was thinking I I, I read somewhere that the SES will bring you know fodder, but I thought they might might be a bit busy. So I rang. Well, I didn't ring, but I sent a text hoping it would get to her to my daughter Harriet, and said, "Please find a ute, go to Carumban Stock Feed." Fill it up with hay and go to the top of Terranor Hill and see if you can find a boat. And um, I had I didn't receive any reply or anything because, you know, the communication was so bad. But would you believe about four o'clock that afternoon she turns up in a boat at the bottom of our driveway with this 
little landing craft of all things, a little aluminium landing craft with eight bales of hay, an esky of um, food and cold beer. Oh, go Harriet. <laughs> go See, Harriet. She's That's got my girl. In all that, that is my girl. <laughs> oh, that must have been a welcome sight. It was. I was very proud of it. Because your cattle play a really crucial role here, yeah, don't they? They do. Explain, explain yeah. how, the role your cattle play. Well, they um, – one of the big problems we're starting a distillery and we're not on sewerage here, so we have to treat everything on site. And it's hard enough with lots of visitors coming um, and treating their business, but, <laughs> but um, we also have the waste from the still. So, she, so we have to um, find something to do with it. And when we were in the little green shed, we looked into it and we had these um, tanks which, you know, sort of settled it and then, then it was going to be pumped into a reed bed and we set it all up with pipes and tanks and everything um, to treat the small amount that we were doing at that time when we were hand-cutting things. But we had no fences at that stage and the cattle had the roam roaming around everywhere. And so the, it used to go from the still to a couple of troughs at the back of the distillery to cool down before we put it into the, um, the tanks. And then we discovered it kept disappearing overnight and there were all these hoof prints around it. So we looked up and discovered that actually it's quite good for them because we've got, it's got all the dead yeast and, and um, it, it's a bit of protein in a time in the winter, which is when we harvest, when there's actually not a lot in the pasture. So, um, so we thought, well, well, this is pretty good. So we started feeding it to them and we've been doing that ever since. That's excellent. Yeah, so... So, so we, yeah, they, so you have to look after them. They play an important role, and they role. love it. They love it. They they just kick up their heels. They know. They know. Whenever they see the harvester out there, they get very excited. <laughs> they, <laughs> they know, know it's what's that coming. time. They know it's that time of year again. Beautiful. Yeah. So what happened? Uh, what was the aftermath then of um, for you for you guys uh, of the floods in Feb? Well, uh, when I went, we didn't really know that the distillery had been flooded. It didn't have a lot of water f- through the main building, just enough to be a real nuisance and put mud on the floor. Um, but we canoed over there and uh, we were pretty shocked at what, what we found and how high it had come because we never believed it would go into the main distillery. So I just got a bit of an adrenaline rush and I remember thinking, God, this is a disaster. <laughs> and um, I, all I wanted to do was get on the end of a squeegee and start squeegeeing the mud out as soon as possible because I figured it was once it dried it would be really hard to get rid of. And you would be right. And that's what we did. We just um, we just squeegeed and squeegeed and a couple of days later the first of our staff arrived with their four-wheel drives and um, one of them was in tears. <laughs> Gave me the biggest hug which was sweet and I was like, well, here we are. Here's, here's a brew. Stop here's crying. a shovel. Here's a brew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. a hardened country girl. Yeah. <laughs> Don't bother me with your tears. Yeah, but um, anyway, it was a, it was an awful mess, but we got stuck into it, and the staff were good. and And the main thing was that we were about to our daughter was about to get married uh, uh, on the 18th of March, and this was the third of March when our first of <laughs> yeah. So uh, I said to Harriet. No, we were, I'm afraid, darling, we won't be able to have the wedding here. And she said, well, I don't mind, Mum, but I'm going to get married on that date, so we'll find somewhere else. And I said, okay, darling. Anyway, 10 days into the, the clean-up, she says to me, Mum, 
I think we can do it. And I just, I was exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like she's her mother's daughter. And this is the, this is the woman that delivered beer and hay. Yes. In the height of the flood, right? Yeah. And uh, sure enough, we did it. We did it. Um, so That's we were, incredible. Mm. Well, uh, that must have been a beautiful thing to happen after. Oh, it was fantastic. It was exactly what you needed yeah. probably yeah. after all the trauma. Yeah. Well, first of all, we were actually open, would you believe, two weeks later. So it only took two weeks um, before we were open, which was incredible. Mm. And But we actually felt guilty because down on the flat, of course, you know, they were – it was Everyone's it was awful. It was yeah. awful. Um, and so we felt guilty about opening, which was – and so we invited. A lot of people have had that survivor yeah, guilt. Yeah. I think, uh, so in we, different forms. We invited the whole of the village to come um, before we opened, nice. and and had you know free burgers and drinks and 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 we're worried about how they take it. But actually, certainly the ones that came, it was just so lovely for them to get clean clothes and get dressed up, and and it was an it was like. I think they got the feeling that life will get back to normal. What made you? Right. You've written two books. Um, one, Tropic Tide, was about your dad, and uh, Hanoi Dew was based, was it correct, around your, your French stepfather? Yes, yes. And that was nominated for a Premier's Prize in 2006. Yes, which Premier's is Prize for nonfiction. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, what made you, what, what, was the, what was the inspiration for writing? Um, oh, well, I, I was, because I was married to a geologist, um, I had to manage the whole home affairs and children because Paul was an exploration geologist so he was out a lot away for weeks on end sometimes um so it's, it's being you know I did, I was able to stay at home and 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 manage things so that's what I had to do um but I just can save my sanity um I already sort of started when dad was around with my um, people used to say someone should write his story. So I'd started for family, you know, for yes. family to um, get everything down from him and he gave me what he had in terms of his reports that he had to write after the war because he actually stayed behind after the war and, and went back up the railway to bring back the civilian labourers. So for six months he's, he was up there um, bringing them back. So and for helping. six months afterwards, sorry, yeah. he, could, he could have left. Yeah. He, they said, right, we're taking you out. You're a prisoner of war, obviously yeah. malnourished and not well. And so um, what, he got to a certain level of, of health and then went back? Well, he was a, towards the end of the war, they're in a lot better shape than earlier yeah. because I think the Japanese probably um, could see the writing was on the war. Yes. Thought it wasn't a good look. So Started feeding them Yeah, a bit. yeah. So, um, yeah, he, but when the, the troops came in, um, they didn't know where anybody was or what was going on, so... He, my dad volunteered to take people up and, and get that whole operation going for all the civilians that didn't have any organisations because the Japanese just left them, left their camps, whereas for the, uh, for the Allied troops, the Japanese were told by the Americans to stay and keep control until, you know, they got there, um, just so that there wasn't huge outbreaks of fights. Um, but yeah, the Japanese just left the civilian camps, and they were helpless, really. So that's what he did. I wonder whether that actually provided a great part of healing for him. Yeah, I because think you so. know, if, if you're thinking, if you leave something like the Burma Railway concentration camp, you know, any other horrific 
um, situation like that, you want to walk away. You can't imagine wanting to go back. Mm. But I also imagine that by going back and helping and giving, uh, he was able to start the healing process even then. Yeah. But that, that, I think that's very true. But your degree in finance accounting, of course, as CFO is coming in very handy. It's Are you enjoying been, it now? Uh, well, I'm enjoying now that I can um, – I've, I've got an accountant now, which is great, and, a, and an assistant accountant. And so I just look at the, the big picture. Yeah, nice. I'm, and I've always been a big picture person, yeah. I'm but, a big picture about everything. I think a lot of people um, – I think they get too involved in the minutiae in personalities and individual incidents and get upset about things more than they need to. I think everybody should just calm down and look at the big picture of where we are in in historical terms um, and how far the human race has become and understand that we are a pretty violent race. I mean, we look back in in history through the Greeks, the Romans, the Goths, the Vandals, you know, all that that history and the terrible things we used to do to each other. Um, And here we are now and look how far we've come and unbelievably we're living in um it doesn't feel like it but in one of the most peaceful times that humanity has ever known but just as far as history's lessons i found one of the most interesting things that i um talked about or researched in my book was about the malayan emergency where my parents were after the war and um how the british you know had a communist insurgency there and how differently they dealt with it Compared to the Americans, tell us, tell um, us about that. Well, they didn't. They they didn't. Well, f- firstly, they the war was run by the police instead of the army. But so the police actually controlled the army, which was pretty novel um, because they didn't want too much aggro. They wanted to win over the hearts and minds. And so the the communists were actually in the jungle as they were in Vietnam. But they they did this food denial policy, um, and everybody who lived in Pahang or wherever you were bordering a jungle area was could only buy food enough for that day. So if you even if you went and bought a canned product, you had to they opened the can at the shop and you could only get a small ration of rice. You had to go to the shop every day and they basically it was so that the the Chinese communist supporters couldn't um, get the they, they cut the supply line to the people in the jungle. At the same time, they had a policy of you can either surrender and then you will, you will go through a rehabilitation and um, eventually go back and live a, a normal life mm. or if we capture you, you'll be executed. And that was basically the policy and, um, and it, it worked. You know, they, they eventually won that war and they didn't call it a war for two reasons. One was because the effect on the insurance market because there was a lot of terrorist attacks on um, businesses um, from the communists and um, and the other was because they wanted the police to run it instead of the army. Yeah. So, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it, I found it really interesting. That's another thing people don't know about is that it was a different way of doing, you know, doing basically had the same problem of, of the – in Vietnam, but it was a different way of looking at it, winning the hearts and minds of the people who lived in the country, yeah. who were Malays, um, and and making it difficult for the communists to 
Yeah. So less right. violent, obviously still some executions, never yes. good. Yes. But you would have, uh, in an ideal world, you'd want everyone to walk out of the jungle and surrender. Yeah. But, but there were some very nasty people because my mum worked for Special Branch. Um, she worked for the chief of Special Branch in, in Pahang and it was her job when the prisoners were brought in to um, feed them and settle them down so that they could be interrogated. And so she used to spend a lot of time with them. And well, she in just an open office, or were uh, they handcuffed, or no? Well, no, it was insecure, insecure. But but she was the first point of contact, right? Um, because she was a woman, and she yeah. But she did have some very nasty ones. There was one um, particular one that had strung a, a tapper woman up on a tree and disemboweled her, and she was pregnant. She just cut all her guts out. And it was all hanging out when they found her. And she said it was the hardest thing that she could do to be nice to this person. Um, so that, they were, there were some pretty hardcore people there. And it also makes, makes you understand, not understand, but, yeah, understand a little bit more about how if that was, and, uh, you know, I don't know whether this is a gender thing, but if you're a man and you're faced with that, and that had been a friend, family, or any, even if it wasn't, how they could react violently mm. instead of, you know, your mother sitting back going, all right, this is not my job. I'm just here to be the administrator. I'm your first point of contact. Mm. Yeah, how people react with just want revenge. And I always think that must be such a difficult thing when you're in the battlefield and. You see your mates just yeah. well, that's what, yeah, dying, that's, dying, 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 yeah. and then you see someone from the other side and you go, right, I'm going to hurt you. Mm. Um, well, that's what happens, I'm yeah. afraid. It, well, we're human war, beings. War is pretty ugly. Yeah. Yeah. And sure he, he actually, this chap, he actually told, told my mum, you know, I had you in the sights of my gun. I knew that you were down on the beach at Chempadak Um and I had you in the sights of my gun and then I decided, I knew you were Mem's special branch and I decided not, not to shoot you because I was hungry and I would have, um, I would have been, you know, attracted attention. So oh. it was a pretty... Wow. <laughs> so, That's pretty full on. Yeah, it was. It was. It was, mm. um, yeah, it was a pretty full on time. I mean, the house that they were in um, on the river, none of... You know, this used to have a cook and a, a gardener and what have you in those days, an armour, and um, none of the staff wanted to live there because it was used as a torture chamber. That it was a torture place um, under the Japanese. They used to hold hold the prisoners down under the water in the in the bath, which was called the tong, and then um, throw the bodies in the river when the crocodiles would eat them. So it, it was. And mum, mum had only just got married in Singapore, and and. That was their first. <laughs> she, That's where Dad she, had taken it to. Yeah, and it was all very quiet. And nobody took told her that story for quite some time, but eventually she heard it. And, oh, since she, she, was, oh, she sounds like that's why she's ninety three and still living on fifty acres on her own. Yeah, she's tough. She's <laughs> well, seen that's it. That's right, Mandy. Let's finish. What's your favourite cocktail? Oh, um, there are so many. You know, our staff are constantly making delicious cocktails, and some of they're just so many. I, I couldn't really say whatever this week, but you know, I don't mind a good old gin and tonic or a Negroni, yeah, <laughs> with some ink gin. Yes, why not? And some husk rum. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful. All right, thanks so much. It's been lovely chatting. 
Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Oh, so much I got. I love the reminder of the glass half full. Imagine the man who sees maggoty rice as a gift and then links that memory eternally. Such textbook mango behaviour, which in this case held VB Perkins in good stead. It's good advice not to get stuck in the minutiae of life, but focus instead on the big picture. I think this is one of the advantages of studying history, the ability to compare with what's gone before. Now, Mandy's book, Tropic Tide, isn't in the shops anymore, but if you contact her via her website, mandaleeperkins.com, you can get hold of one there. And Hanoi Adieu, which is based on her stepfather's experiences in Indochina, and which incidentally was on the shortlist of the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards in 2006, you can get that on Amazon. If you're local or visiting the Northern Rivers, you simply must hit up Husk Farm Distillery for food, for tours and overall joyous experiences at huskdistillers.com. Or at the very least, grab some ink gin or husk rum from your local bottle You'll love it. And if you're still not sure what a mango is and how knowing can possibly have any use in your life, take a look at my website, linscanella.com.au, where you can do a short quiz and check out all things fruity. It's been fab to have you along today, as usual. I do hope you enjoyed Mandy. Thanks for being with us. And remember, be kind to each other. I'm Lynn Scanella, and this has been Fruitful Conversations. Fruitful Conversations.